Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I am joined by my co-host. It don't worry me. It don't worry me. You may say that I ain't free, but it don't worry me. Thank you, Jason Harris, (laughs) for that. You know, I always enjoy when Jason does impressions, less so when Jason attempts to sing. I really gave it my all there, Josh. That makes it worse somehow, I think. (laughs) Jason Harris is clearly no Barbara Harris. (laughs) So true. But what, what, what music is Jason mangling? Well, in this special bonus episode of our season on the films of 1975, We are talking about Robert Altman's Nashville. We decided that for this year, which is one of the awesomest movie years, perhaps, uh, maybe even the awesomest of all, as Jason believes. I think so. Yeah. That the the set of Best Picture nominees was so strong, and we had already talked about three of them in our main season, that we wanted to finish it out and talk about the other nominees. So that includes Nashville. And it was also a movie that I almost used for my pick this season, as we talked about in our epilogue episode. And I went with the Stepford Wives, which I was glad that I did. And I love the Stepford Wives. But um, that was one more reason to kind of take a look at this movie. And Jason had never seen it before and was excited to see it. That's true. And today we get to present Robert Altman with the Rob Reiner Award, getting his third film on Awesome Movie Year. Congratulations, Robert. True. Yes. A a real honor for Robert Altman. In the afterlife, he is feeling good about himself. I mean, yes, he was nominated for five Academy Awards over his career, but now he's in the Awesome Movie Year Hall of Fame with the Rob Reiner Award, having covered The Player and Three Women, and now Nashville. He gets his deserving. Yeah, spot. he's up there with with Reiner and Martin Scorsese, and I'm not sure about anybody else. But someday we'll break that and we'll get a fourth Rob Reiner movie. Probably it'll be. I think it's happening next season. Wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> but now we're don't get ahead of ourselves. We're talking about Nashville, which is not only one of the Best Picture nominees, but One of the most highly acclaimed movies of 1975, one of the most highly acclaimed movies of all time, really. This is such a huge deal, probably still Robert Altman's most acclaimed film, I guess. Although, I mean, he's had quite an amazing career. MASH, The Player, Gosford Park. I mean, there's a bunch in there. There are. I think maybe this still tops those, at least in terms of its sort of long-standing critical appreciation, but we don't have to make it a competition. The point is, this is a great movie, and it was a it was recognized as a great movie from the beginning. It also did decently well at the box office. It grossed $10 million on its budget of $2.2 million, which is not spectacular, but for a close to three-hour ensemble drama without a clear narrative and main character, you know, that's not bad, actually. It's the 70s, man. You know, it's more important just to like, hey, we made a good movie. People like it. We made money on it. That's enough. Yeah. And, and, and it did do well. I mean, it was nominated again for Best Picture. 
as well as for Best Director for Robert Altman and two Best Supporting Actress nominations for Ronnie Blakely and for Lily Tomlin. And it won the Best Original Song Oscar, not for the song that Jason was was attempting no. to sing earlier. Crazy. But for I'm Easy, another song written and performed by Keith Carradine. And that to me is one of the, the like most amazing things that, that the actors, for the most part in this film, not only sang, but also wrote the songs that their characters sang. And they're all really good. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It's like all the music's great. You know, you mentioned uh, Ronnie Blakely. She was just like a background singer in uh, Nashville, you know, having never acted before and not really a musical breakout artist. And here she does. And she just kind of cleans up in this role. She right? does. And I mean, she at least even if she wasn't a famous musical artist, was a musician and was cast in this movie, in fact, because she approached it first about submitting her music. But to me, what's almost was like, so then it's impressive that she's also a great actor in this film. But it's equally, if not more impressive to me, that these people who are not musicians or at least not known as musicians, like Keith Carradine, are just writing great songs for their characters to sing because that's what Robert it's Altman wanted them to do. Yeah, and it really adds to the movie. You know, Altman said that the country artists at the time did not like the film. They thought they were making fun of it, or that's what they said. But he said they were just upset that they didn't, uh, that he didn't use their music. But then the next generation of country artists really loved this film. Uh, Josh, more on the awards. It had four Best Supporting Actress uh, Golden Globe nominations. That's pretty crazy, uh, four, four of the same movie. And it had 11 Golden Globe knobs, which I think is still the record. Overall. Wow. Yeah. Also nominated for five BAFTAs and a bunch of others. Um, I don't know if you had any more to mention, but, you know, eh, just the awesome movie. You're that's holiday. important. That's the most important. But yeah, I mean, this is a movie where there's not really a lead actor. So anybody who's nominated is going to be in that supporting category. But you're right. I don't know if there have been that many nominations in the supporting category from one movie at the Golden Globes ever before. I don't think there is. I think this is the record. Yeah. And it was also highly acclaimed by critics. I mean, to a really almost uh, absurd degree. <laughs> so um, they loved it. And I mean, it, and worthwhile. But but the the amount of enthusiasm was was kind of amazing to me. So uh, Roger Ebert did name it the best movie of 1975. And Gene Siskel did as well. And in his review, Roger Ebert said, Robert Altman's Nashville, which was the best American movie since Bonnie and Clyde, creates in the relationships of nearly two dozen characters a microcosm of who we were and what we were and what we were up to in the 1970s. It's a film about the losers and the winners, the drifters and the stars in Nashville, and the most complete expression yet of not only the genius but also the humanity of Altman, who sees people with his camera in such a way as to enlarge our own experience. Sure, it's only a movie, but after I saw it, I felt more alive. I felt I understood more about people. I felt somehow wiser. It's that good a movie. So not only the best movie of the year, but the best American movie since in eight years, because we know Bonnie and Clyde, 67. Right. So uh, pretty, pretty good. Yes, pretty good. It may Better than uh, The Godfathers and, you know. Uh, other uh, like, you know, Cuckoo's Death stuff from the early and mid 70s and 
So there you are. Right. Yeah. I mean, just really, and not only like a great movie, but you know, that's somehow making Ebert feel like he's a, a better human or whatever. Josh, what makes you feel like a better? It's human? doing this, Any doing movies? this podcast really. Do you ever watch a movie and say, I'm a better person? No, no, it? I'm never going to become a better person. It's, uh, it's not going to happen. I don't think that must be free <laughs> to, to just know, like you are who you are. And that's I it. guess so. I never really thought of it that way, but thank you. Yeah, you don't have to have any goals or aspirations. <laughs> no, why would I have any of those? <laughs> anyway, Pauline Kael in The New Yorker was similarly, perhaps even more enthused. She said, is there such a thing as an orgy for movie lovers? But an orgy... There is in my house. <laughs> but an orgy without excess. At Robert Altman's new almost three-hour film, Nashville, you don't get drunk on images. You're not overpowered. You get elated. I've never before seen a movie I loved in quite this way. I sat there smiling at the screen in complete happiness. It's a pure emotional high, and you don't come down when the picture is over. You take it with you. Nashville isn't organized according to patterns that you're familiar with, yet you don't question the logic. You get it from the rhythms of the scenes. The picture is at once a grand hotel-style narrative, with 24 linked characters, a country and Western musical, a documentary essay on Nashville and American life, a meditation on the love affair between performers and audiences, and an Altman party. Yeah, I pulled this quote from Pauline Kael, the funniest epic vision of America ever to reach the screen. And uh, America, Josh, is a key word there because we obviously, uh, Ebert, mentioned that it's an American movie. This definitely has that Americana feel to it and is a look and a glimpse into what society was and where it was going. Jim. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's clearly meant to be kind of a statement on America. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like a movie where Altman is constantly shaking you and saying, this is important, you know, something like that, where I think a lot of times if a filmmaker makes a movie that is meant to be a microcosm of what's going on in America or whatever, it can feel like that. I agree. It's like, um, I think that's a good point. I, I, you know, when we talk about Scorsese, I will often bring up the King of Comedy. This is one of those movies that was like just ahead of where everything was going. I guess in a way, Truman Show was like that too. And you can see some similarities in all three of those movies with the power of stardom and wanting to be loved. Yeah. I mean, then that's a very American thing, of course, is this, this hunger for approval from the masses or whatever, which is something that many of the characters here are looking for. Not for you, Josh. You don't care because you don't. You're never going to be anything more than you are. Yeah, I hope. I hope the masses enjoy enjoy this podcast. Uh, not 1953 season. Oh, come on, man! No need for that. <laughs> We're having a good time here. I like how he takes it personally. Yeah. It's your podcast too. We wanna. We wanna create good content for people. Hey. Josh, can I give another uh, Pauline Kael quote? Because we mentioned Ronnie Blakely. Ronnie, This is Ronnie Blakely's first movie, and she puts most movie hysteria to shame. She achieves her gift so simply. I wasn't surprised when somebody sitting beside me started to cry. Perhaps for the first time on screen, one gets the sense of an artist being destroyed by her gifts. Yeah, that is, I mean, she is great in this, in this film. And, but at the same time, like, there is no lead. So she doesn't get more screen time, per se, than many of the other characters. And they're all. Yeah, great. they are all great. And I mean, I can see how she is a standout. And of course, she has her character has this very tragic arc 
that gives her a lot to play as opposed to some of the other characters who are, you know, more understated or, or don't, don't have as big a change in, in, in the character across the course of the film. But, but she is excellent and is impressive that, that this is her uh, debut performance. Yeah. So to me, the scene that like makes this performance and showcases just how amazing she is and also what an amazing director Altman is, is the scene in the hospital with her husband, Barnett, where they're like fighting and she wants to leave and she wants to leave him. And then he kind of like, you know, I do this all for you. Right. And, you know, she just keeps repeating the word no based on whatever the question is. But each version of it has so much meaning. I just thought like that scene was just incredible. Yeah, that is. And the other scene where they get her out of the hospital, clearly before she's ready and then put her up on stage and she's about to start a song and she keeps getting sidetracked with these stories about her childhood that don't really go anywhere. And you can just feel the discomfort of everyone in the audience and and the tragedy of this woman who is not well and should not be standing on a stage right now, but the machine of Nashville has put her there anyway. Right. You know, one of the points of the movie is that I thought I couldn't believe how effective it was. You know, Altman shot all the musical sequences as like as they were live concerts. And sometimes that technique, like I think of like the fighter, um, the David O. Russell movie, and I hated the fight scenes, which were all shot kind of like live, you know, um, as opposed to like Raging Bull or whatnot. But then if I'm going to look at like a Scorsese movie that I could compare to this, I would say like the last waltz and everything. And the way the performances are shot feels so natural. And there's such an energy because these are shot in concert. I was like blown away by that. Right. You could watch this movie as a concert movie and still enjoy it, I think, you know, and, and even still learn about the characters because the songs themselves, the way that they were created by the actors reflect on the characters and the way the performances are delivered on stage do the same. I guess this isn't considered like a traditional musical, but I don't think you can have the conversation about best musicals without this movie in there. Spoiler alert, that's how much I like yeah. the movie. Well, I mean, and, and Pauline Kael refers to it as a musical there, as or as one of the things that it is. And I think that's that's not wrong. So uh, finally, Vincent Canby in the New York Times was also very enthused, but slightly less so. Uh, he said, Nashville is a panoramic film with dozens of characters set against the country and Western music industry in Nashville. It's a satire, a comedy, a melodrama, a musical. Its music is terrifically important, funny, moving, and almost nonstop. It's what a Tennessee granddaddy might call a real toe-tapper of a picture. There are so many storylines in Nashville that one is more or less coerced into dealing in abstractions. Nashville is about the quality of a segment of middle American life. It's about ambition, sentimentality, politics, emotional confusion, empty goals, and very big business in a society whose citizens are firmly convinced that the use of deodorants is next to godliness. Nashville doesn't make easy fun of these people. It doesn't patronize them. Along with their foolishness, it sees their gallantry. Hmm. You know, as toe tappers do. No, I mean, I think, though, that that was a, a good point, is that you could come into this movie thinking, oh, this is just going to make fun of of country music and of the South and these kind of rubes or whatever. And that's not what it is. I mean, it is making fun of some of the characters some of the time, but Altman is very 
sympathetic and empathetic about these people, even the most ridiculous characters, even the ones who are kind of reprehensible at times. And it's not just look at these idiots and laugh at them in any way. No, I agree. I have a quote from Ray Sawhill in Salon, Josh. Salon. Yeah, not from 1975. He said of the film, the result is an x-ray of the error's uneasy political soul. What it reveals is a country trying to pull itself together from a nervous breakdown. And I wanted to pull that quote because we often talk about films after a war or in this case, a police action, right? You know, and I think this is like such a cool version of a movie that's dealing with um, the mood of America after or throughout Vietnam without, you know, kind of shining a light on Vietnam itself. Right. Yeah. I mean, we talked about this in our episode on Cuckoo's Nest, where I think at least I felt that like maybe it, it didn't do that as effectively as this does. And I think you're right that that this is not a movie where people are like, hey, Vietnam or whatever. But it's it's certainly something that's hanging over it. And sometimes in more explicit ways. I mean, there's a scene in the airport early on where Keith Carradine's character, Tom, the the folk singer, confronts Scott Glenn's uh, military veteran character and is like, you know, did you kill anyone today or whatever? I mean, and that just kind of just passing interaction is something that people are dealing with all the time. And it's a theme of this year. I mean, I think even when we did Dog Day Afternoon, the idea of like, who's the hero and who's the anti-hero, you know, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy is something that America had to deal with. Uh, as we went through Vietnam. And uh, thankfully, we've gotten into no wars since. Yeah, everything's great. We're all good guys mm-hmm. now. It's wonderful. <laughs> so as you said, Jason, you had not seen this before, but this was clearly on your list of something to watch. Dude, I, need, I knew I needed to watch it. And uh, that's why I was kind of pushing for it. And thank you for the audience for also pushing for it. But um, I I was like an hour into this and I was like, you know, sometimes when you know, you're like, holy shit, this could be one of the best movies ever made. And then you're like, can it like go for the re- the next hour and 40 minutes of it? And it does. And the other point of that that's so crazy to me is like, I often say this when I think of like Dazed and Confused. If you read the script of Dazed and Confused, you'd be like, no, this can't work. Like, this is just a mishmash of characters. There's no like through line other than like there's a big party. Characters come and go and leave for a long time and come back. You're like, this this won't work as a movie. But because Linkletter is such a master, right? Like he made that into one of the all-time great movies. I feel like the same thing. If I had read this as a script, I'd be like, what? This is just a lot of just kind of pastiches or vignettes, but like it just <laughs> hangs together so well. You're like, you know, bow down to the king of uh, of uh, character ensemble movies here that he just kills this thing. Right. right? I mean, and, you know, the script by Joan Tewksbury doesn't have, I think, a lot of what's in the movie. You know, Altman is big on improvisation and just like he had the characters write their song or the actors write their songs for their characters. You know, he allowed a lot of improv. Um, the climactic act of violence in this film was not originally in the script. So a lot of things that Altman brought to it that wouldn't have even been on the page. And just just even if the script was word for word, just the music itself, which wouldn't have been in the script, makes a huge difference. I just think like, yeah, I mean, like you're talking about even improv, like, you know, that's a that's a fine line to thread. Sure. Right. It could go 
so wrong or go in uh, directions that don't necessarily fit together because there are so many different stories, 24 characters. Um, but uh, but this thing just like hums all the way through. Yeah, yeah. I had seen it. I mean, this was why I had thought of having it as my pick. I saw it quite a long time ago, I think, when I first was getting interested in Altman films. So I r- didn't remember much of the detail of this movie when I watched it again. So it, it felt in a lot of ways like watching it for the first time. But I had loved it then. I had it at my at number one on my top 10 of 1975. And uh, I did really like it again this time. I think I was slightly less blown away and slightly less immersed. And it wasn't just, I don't know, it wasn't an ideal situation for me to watch it this time. But it is a brilliant film. And I'm glad that you loved it. Um, you had some stuff going on. I had some stuff. I had some stuff. But it was fine. All right. You want to tell us? No, I'm good, right? (laughs) It was partially just I had like things to do. And so I was kind of like watching it and then I got interrupted and then I came back to it, you know, and so you really want to be able to immerse yourself in this film because there's so much going on. I I started it late at night and I was like, I'll just watch half tonight and half tomorrow because, you know, that's a lot of the times that's how I have to watch things. But like I couldn't stop watching it. I watched it all the way that night and I was like, (laughs) glad I did. It's I honestly, if I had the time. I would have watched it again the next wow. day. Yeah, I mean that is definitely the better the better way to watch it than uh, than what I ended up doing. But I had parts where I was finally able to to focus on it. And but nobody watched it better for the first time than the way the way Dave watched it the first time, right, Dave? That's right. How did you watch it the first time, Dave? You were watching this again, right? Yeah, this was my second time. My first time was earlier this year uh, on the plane on my way to Nashville for the first time. Uh, I was like. I should watch Nashville on the way to Nashville. And I watched Nashville and I loved it then. I actually loved it more this time. So it's, it's so good. That is uh, definitely the right way to do it. And a a, a way to prep for your, your visit to Nashville and how it's going to crush your dreams of country music stardom. (laughs) I mean, he didn't really have a choice because he was wearing the rhinestone shirts (laughs) and the boots and, you know, tassels. Yeah. So what else are you going to do if you're doing those things? That is, that is true. So, uh, Anything else you want to mention on the background of this film, Jason? I mean, there's a lot. You mentioned Joe Tewksbury, the writer. Uh, you know, she and Altman had collaborated before and actually pitched a movie about Nashville. You know, I think in like 1970 when they were doing McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And uh, he's like, so in like 1973 or 74, he goes, right, go to Nashville, write down what you got. And the basis of the script was basically just notes that she took in her notebook. So, um, you know, hey, uh, a very artistic process. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the kind of improvised in many ways process that Altman likes. You know, we talked about three women being based on a dream that he had or something. He's always kind of working in these strange ways, but it works out most of the time, it seems like. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's because we're in this and this is a legacy thing in this different time, like you know, we know Altman's like one of the icons of the film, but maybe he's become underrated. Yeah, maybe. Well, uh, eh, could be, could be just. All right, we'll come back and talk more of our general thoughts on Nashville. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this special bonus episode of our season on the films of 1975, we're talking about Robert Altman's Nashville. And Jason, you were just blown away by this, it seems like. I was, much like Patrick McGilligan in the Boston Globe, who said it's perhaps the most talked about American movie since Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. Wow. Yeah, but, you know. could be. 
you know i don't know about that the godfather yeah you know whatever uh no i really i I really love this movie and um it uh it gave me some uh crises here josh because is this my favorite movie of 1975 or is dog day afternoon my favorite movie of 1975 wow i don't know what did you pick yeah, well, I mean, like I said, I had this at the top of my list before, and I think I would still put it on there, even though, like I said, I maybe wasn't as completely amazed this time. You know, thinking about it afterwards, it's like, no, this is really just fantastic. And so many great things about it, the performances, the way that it's structured, the music, I mean, the the editing of this, you know, the way that Robert Altman shoots with all the the overlapping dialogue and just the sheer number of characters and how things have to connect. It must have been incredibly difficult to put something like this together. Yeah, the sound design for all of that and the music because you're shooting it all live in concert style and everything. And, you know, there's an hour of music in this movie. But what's so cool is the music's not just there to be there. Like it all, you know, it lifts up the story. It tells you about the characters, right? And um, you see that from uh haven and barbara of gene that we talked about but you also see it from the lesser characters who aren't doing as well with their music you know um so i don't know i don't know this is just like i said i would have watched this again the next day because i would i felt like i could have learned so much just by re-watching it there right and that was kind of in the way the way that i felt is that even though i'd seen it before it'd been so long that it felt like watching it anew and as I was watching it, I was like, I feel like there's things that I'm maybe missing here because there's just so much. And at first it takes you, I think, a little bit to get on the wavelength of this film and you're just thrown you're right, right into the middle of it. And you're like, who are these people? And, and it takes a while to figure out, you know, who is important? Who is a character that we're going to follow? And who is someone who's just walking through this scene and we're never going to see them again? Yeah. And they spend a lot of time at the beginning on the replacement party rally coming to to town and um the political candidate who's just kind of using his voice on loudspeakers through a truck right that you never see that character anyway uh what is it how how philip walker is this uh this sort of outsider populist presidential candidate whose rally is the culmination of the film right and you see so much of it at the beginning and you're like okay where what you know this is this the main character and then it turns out like well, no, but there are all these other characters who relate to him and all these other uh, artists who relate to them. And it all kind of has this through line that like, again, I'm like, how did you make this all work, man? How did you do that? Yeah, it is. It is something that even watching it, you're like, I don't know if this is all going to come together. And and yet. It, it really does. And I mean, that political stuff, too. You know, you might start watching this and think, why are we listening to political speeches if this, in this movie about the country music industry? And then it all does really come together there at that rally. And the fact that it's for this political candidate, I think, is is important, you know, um, that it's not just a concert at the end of the film where all the characters are performing. It's this political rally. And they all have their kind of own reasons for being there. You know, Haven Hamilton has got his own political ambitions and Barbara Jean is is trying to rehabilitate her image. And you've got other characters there in the audience. And yet they all come together in that moment for this this sort of tragedy that ends the film. Right. And you see um, different fortunes for different characters like beyond the ones that you mentioned, 
like Suline, who is not talented, but doesn't realize it and always thinks she's going to get a break and never does, uh, uh, mostly because she doesn't really have the talent for it. Whereas that Barbara Harris character, uh, Albuquerque, that I so wonderfully sang an homage to earlier, Josh, like she just comes out of nowhere. And like the whole time she's been kind of like in the background and you would think like she's probably another character who doesn't really have much going for her. And then she just blows you away with that final number. Like her, she's amazing. I had to watch that song multiple times because I was like, she's just awesome. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's the thing is that she spends the whole movie trying to break into the country music industry. And she's sort of this hapless, she seems like this like hapless loser, right? She shows up with her husband and runs away from him and is trying to like crash the stage in multiple places and tries to sing at this car race where no one can hear her. And you think she's just kind of a joke. And here's another one of these deluded dreamers or whatever. But right, she takes the stage at the very end and obviously is an amazing singer. And yet she's not getting that opportunity. And maybe in part because uh, Suleen, who can't sing, does get the chance to go on stage and prove that she can't sing, you know, maybe because she's younger and more conventionally attractive or whatever, and they want to see her take her clothes off. Yeah, but you get the feeling like this is a career making turn for her, right? Like in that number with Barbara Harris. And I love the way that it starts out so like kind of timid. And then like she just goes for it. And then the choir, the gospel choir, like kind of figures out what's you know, what she's doing and they get into it. And that scene just goes on and on. And it's like you would think like, oh, this is a really long scene, but it's not. It's just a really good scene. Yeah, it is. And and I think you're right that there's that that moment of like seeing her come into her own. But at the same time, right, it's in the aftermath of this character being killed. And it's very sad. And there's so there's kind of mixed feelings about, oh, is she's getting her big break, like you said, your career making moment or whatever, because this woman has been murdered and right. someone needs to step up and take control there. So it's a the lot show of, must go on. As exactly. They say, right? But yeah. um, this is, um, you know, that's Barbara Jean who gets killed. And um, that um, I kept I saw this interview with Altman where he said after John Lennon was uh, murdered, they the uh, reporter called him and said, do you feel responsible for this because of what you put in Nashville, right? Which happened five years later, which is a pretty crappy thing to say to someone who like just made an art piece, right? And he said, I don't feel responsible. Do you feel responsible for not heeding the warning I gave you in Nashville? Right. I mean, and neither of those is really, you know, accurate i guess right of course of course but you know uh altman was not one to uh back down from a confrontation mm -hmm. right no and i mean and he sure certainly shouldn't feel responsible for that but but i think yeah i mean maybe he is anticipating sadly things that would happen i mean lennon was killed on the street but i mean i think of like you know this is many many years later but like uh daryl abbott from pantera who was murdered while performing on stage by a mm. fan or fan you know, someone from the audience who came on stage and shot him, you know, so that was decades later. Uh, right. So it's still, you know, it's still a thing, sadly. Yeah. And I think part of that quote with when Altman was saying that was like he's uh, regarding the John Lennon incident was like, uh, that's probably not the end of it either. So sadly, yeah. he was right. Um, Josh, we're, we just talked about the end, but like this thing had me from the beginning with that amazing title sequence, which was like a 
Grand Old Opry advertisement, you know, type thing where it's just announcing the cast and uh, Altman. And uh, it's just a really cool, very strange title sequence by Dan Perry. Yeah, I loved it. I thought of like, you know, uh, late night commercials for those old like record compilations or whatever, you know, KTEL records, all the hits here, call this 800 <laughs> number and get this record, you know? So yeah, it's like, I had, again, I forgotten so much. And like, as I, I put that on and that started and I was like, oh, did I accidentally put on the like special features on the DVD or something? But it's like, no, that's the beginning of the movie. And it is great because it gives you a real sense of like, this is this industry and we're really going to be totally immersed in it right away. Yeah, I, I think you're there. And, you know, with all these actors, like we're talking about, like they all kind of leveled up and you you could you would think that from like, uh, you know, you know, look, Ned Beatty's always going to be good. Lily Tomlin's always going to be good. Right. But, um, you know, I think like H Henry Gibson, who played um, Haven, this is such a departure for him. And, uh, you know, he was on laughing and everything. And like he's he just like nails it like everyone just brings it in this thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and Lily Tomlin, too. I mean, she was famous here, but this was her first film role and she was known right. for comedy and for stand up comedy. And so this dramatic role, I think, was a departure for her, too. And she's very good as as one of the most sympathetic characters in this film. Um, this this mother who's devoted to her deaf children and has kind of a not very attentive husband and, you know, then has this affair with another person who's really a total less dick. attentive. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I, ca calling some other woman as she's getting ready to leave. Yeah. Do you think that, you know, the husband who's Dell, which is Ned Beatty's character, do you think he was unattentive or just like I think he was more aloof like he wasn't unattentive but um he was just kind of he didn't realize certain things I'd say yeah I guess I mean it just seems like their their marriage doesn't really have anything to it and I mean especially the scene with the children where you see the son and he's trying to kind of tell this story about how he was at swim lessons or whatever and she's so patient with him and understanding and you can get the sense that the dad that Ned Beatty like doesn't really have the time to bother with his disabled children, you know? Uh, yeah. You know, I was thinking about it. Is this our first time talking about Ned Beatty? I think it is. I don't think we've said anything about him before. Uh, right? Yeah. I think that that may be maybe silver streak, silver streak. We, we didn't, we didn't do it. We didn't do an episode on silver streak. Oh, well, Stir I watched silver streak in, <laughs> in when we were prepping for uh stir crazy. Yeah. So. That was what we did. Uh, see, we've watched so many movies, but I think, um, Again, like, you know, he was one of these guys, like the busiest man in show business with the amount of movies he played. But what I like about him is like, you know, I mentioned Network on our Dog Day episode, which is like this big showcase role. And it's a and he's great in it. But I think like it's so cool that he takes these roles like this or Deliverance where like his manliness is always put into question. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly somebody who's trying to be this big mover and shaker, and he's working with Hal Philip Walker's like campaign manager or whatever to get this rally going, and and people don't really take him very seriously, and uh, and even his wife doesn't take him seriously, and she's you know off to have some uh, affair with this younger man who again is also ter terrible, is perhaps worse, you know, is this terrible womanizer, Keith Carradine's character. Tom part of but she didn't trio. care she no, really didn't care you that know, is she true knew what she was going for that is true she she clearly is satisfied by what she does and even that scene where she says she has to leave and she's getting ready to go and while she's like getting dressed 
he calls up some other girlfriend of his and tries to get her to come over. Like she doesn't really seem super bothered by that. So good for her. And I think, I think that's fair. I mean, she has a, a life of her own to go back to and a partner of her own. Right. Right. So, you know. Yeah. Um, hey, so the one thing that I, that I got a little like that got tedious for me was the Geraldine Chaplin documentarian um bit where she's looking for this hot story in nashville and like i felt like i got the point of that and they just kept coming back to it and i get it that she's a climber and was always looking for like the next big scoop or the next famous person but i just felt like it it became a little monotonous i guess so i love that character though because she's such a buffoon and she's so dedicated to her buffoonery that i found it amusing the more ridiculous and pretentious she gets. I mean, when she's walking around the like school bus parking lot and coming up with multiple different pretentious ways to describe yellow school right. buses, I just thought that was hilarious. So I, I understand because, yes, she's kind of a one dimensional character and you pretty much get her whole deal early on. Um, but I just thought she was very funny and I, I was always amused to see her back on screen. Yeah. Um, we talked a lot about the music. Did you have any favorite songs, Josh? Um, I mean, I, I love that opening number by Haven Hamilton because it's so perfectly terrible. The like bicentennial song with the like uber patriotism to it. I mean, I'm not mistaken. That was a poem that he wrote, uh, like a decade or obviously earlier. And then, uh, he just kind of transformed it into a song. Yeah. I mean, I know Henry Gibson wrote lyrics, uh, for the songs for Haven Hamilton songs. But I mean, it's so like I'm a big country music fan, but I mean, there's a lot of ridiculous, dumb stuff in country music and it perfectly captures that kind of like, you know, sort of fake uh, self-righteousness of a lot of these patriotic country songs, while at the same time being like a super catchy song. So um, I, I thought that was great, not only as a piece of music, but also to like introduce you to this world. Yeah. So, Josh, I was wrong. It was the other song he sang, Keep It Going, ah, yes. that, he, uh, <laughs> that he did on the Dick Van Dyke show as a poem and then turned it into a song. But, um, you know, I was talking about how much the music meant to the story. Like, we haven't even mentioned Karen Black yet, who was an icon of, like, New Hollywood, right? And then she plays kind of like this friend slash uh, rival, I guess, of uh, Barbara Jean, right? And um, she fills in for her. And she plays Connie White and you watch her sing and you see one that she's very talented, but then you watch Barbara Jean watching her and that's what causes her to like, I need to get out of the hospital. I need to get my spot back. And it all just like kind of keeps the momentum and the story and the arcs and the emotion going. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that's why I was saying that, like, you could almost just watch this as a concert film and understand so much about the characters just by the songs that they sing the lyrics of those songs and the way that they perform them. And, and that's every, every performance in this film, really. So, um, yeah, the music is, and it stands on its own too. You know, I think there's like a tribute album to it, uh, from some, uh, years ago. And like, I would totally listen to people just perform these songs cause they're just really good songs. Yeah. I was talking to my dad and he loves this movie too. And he put on, he's like, after we talked, he's like, I put on my Nashville album. You know, so right. uh, probably of the original cast recordings. Yeah, so. I mean, I'm sure that's better. But I'm just saying even the songs are good that I'd be happy to see some, you know, hear some other performers perform them, too. Yeah, no, they're very good. Uh, the last kind of character I wanted to mention was. Uh, yes, I'm going to mention Jeff Goldblum now. <laughs> hey, you're speaking more than he does in that goes, film. Right. Uh, 
he doesn't need to. But uh, you know, he is he does does he even have a line in the movie? I don't think that he does. He's this sort of enigmatic figure who's just in the background. He's riding this great three-wheeled motorcycle, like he's an easy, <laughs> yeah. easy rider that they mentioned at one point. And he kind of takes certain characters from one place to another. And he's uh, hanging out doing magic tricks in the in the cafe where Suling Gay works. And that, that's a great scene where he's doing the magic trick with the salt or whatever. And she's just so amazed. It's and she's favorite. like grabbing the cookie. She's like, did you see what he did? Yeah, he's really just there as like a bridge to get from one scene or one place to the next. And it's great. It Again, it's like, why is this in here? But it all works, you know? So yeah. I thought that was fun. And I wanted to just say, because we did the player you know, Altman having these uh, celebrity cameos like Elliot Gould, who obviously was a longtime collaborator with him and Julie Christie, like he maximizes those celebrity cameos. And uh, those just kind of happened because they were they happened to be in Nashville at the time when he was shooting. Right. And they, yeah, it's a great use. And it shows you something, you know, when when the BBC journalist is like getting this very emotional interview with Haven Hamilton's son and stops paying attention because she's like, oh, look, there's Elliot Gould. I got to go talk to this famous person. And he has no interest in talking to her whatsoever. And then when Julie Christie shows up and and nobody cares, they don't know that she's famous. You know, Connie White is like complaining about her hair or something. And like, you know, these Nashville people don't care about like art house movie stars or whatever. So it's perfect. Yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, that that could be something that could offend some Nashvillians who do like that. Right. But, um, uh, you know, I think what we're really getting to here is I need more Haven Hamilton style clothing in my wardrobe. I could see you in that, in that. So Dave, do you have any thoughts you want to share on this? I mean, you guys are getting to a lot of it. I mean, I don't think you guys mentioned Shelley Duvall yet, who is so different here from, uh, the other movies we've covered with her in it. She's great too. But yeah, the whole ensemble, everybody's great. And I also, I really love that scene with uh, Haven Hamilton singing where it's intercut, you know, his boring ass song with the gospel uh, with Lily Tomlin and it just keeps going back and forth. I mean, that that's like kind of almost like a centerpiece in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So much good stuff. I mean, we could go on, but. Uh, right. Yeah. We could just keep going and going. Joe. We yeah. can keep it going, but let's, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. let's uh, <laughs> rate this out of five. Uh, I don't know. Five hit five, singles. Five hit singles. There you go. How do you rate this, Jason? I gave it four and a half. Man. Wow. And uh, if I watch it again, it might move up to five. I think, um, I, you know, part of the reason I gave it four and a half is because like, I, I'm like, I like this as much as I like Dog Day, which I gave four and a half. But I'm like, do I like it more? I don't know. I'm just going to take another watch at some point, which I'm excited to do. And as always, to dig deeper into the Altman catalog. Yeah, I was hoping to maybe watch and I've been I've seen a number of Altman films, but he's very prolific. So I was hoping to watch something else. But I didn't get a chance to before this, but I'm glad I watched this again. I'm going to give it four just because, like I said, I wasn't quite as into it this time, but I do think it's really great. And I think if I watched it again, I would maybe bump it up. I still think it's probably the best film of this year. So four hit singles for me, Dave. Uh, I'm going five. I, wow. yeah. yeah, I gave That's it, amazing. I gave it four when I watched it on the plane, but I liked it even more this time. Shockingly, better to watch a movie not on a plane. Could you imagine? We uh, we uh, we don't have stats, but I would wonder if this is our highest rated of like if we added our scores up, the highest we've ever rated a movie. Yeah, it might be. I mean, other than Dave giving ten stars to the room, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah, this or Amadeus, I think, are the two. Could be. Yeah. yeah, we'll have to crunch those numbers. We love music, Josh. We do. We so. love music. We'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Nashville. 
Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year in this special bonus episode of our season on the films of 1975. We're talking about Robert Altman's Nashville and the legacy of this film. I mean, starting as we kind of mentioned, is 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 its place in the canon really as one of the greatest films ever made. Uh, I did look this up. I know, Jason, we have a uh, complicated relationship with that sight and sound poll of the greatest films ever, but uh, this landed at number 114 on mm. the most recent sight and sound poll of the greatest films of all time. I kind of thought it might be higher. Yeah. I don't have a complicated relationship with sight and sound. They can go F themselves and their A's for all I care, Josh. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> that is uh, not ambiguous at all. That said, I'm probably I'm. It is a goal to watch every movie on there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it is kind of a gold standard list, and and part of you know part of the existence of those lists is is being able to debate them. But yeah, and telling them to take their D's or their B's and F their A's with it. Mm, a lot of Aye. a lot of letters <laughs> to uh, <laughs> keeping it clean. There. Yeah. Um. So as you said, we've talked about Robert Altman a couple times before, and I mean, he's got so many great, great films. I don't know if there's any particular one, if you've watched anything recently or that you think is underrated. I don't know if I ever mentioned Secret Honor, the Philip Baker Hall one-man performance where he's playing Nixon on his last night in office, and that's a pretty amazing movie. Just the way, I mean, Philip Baker Hall's um, incredible in it, but also the way Altman utilizes basically one space and is able to keep it interesting the whole time. Yeah, I'd like to see that. I know when Philip Baker Hall died, I feel like there was a lot of renewed attention on that film as one of his best roles. And uh, I haven't seen that. Uh, I, I give a shout out to a later Robert Altman film, The Company with Nev Campbell, about a ballet company that is, you know, like this, is this kind of ensemble drama in, in a, immersed in a world of artistic creation and people kind of coming in and out. And is I, I feel like it's a real underrated film that was I, I maybe his like second to last movie that he made, but is is quite good. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, the one I want to see, which is impossible to find, is I was telling Dave about it. Have you ever heard of O.C. and Stiggs? Yeah. His uh, like teen sex comedy. Yeah. How do you even get that? How can you find that movie? I don't know. I haven't really looked into it, but, you know, it might be something that's uh, out there on a bootleg somewhere or something. I don't know. Uh, we got to do it. Um, uh, Josh, the other thing is, um, you know, if you look at his filmography, like he basically made a movie every year for 20 years in a row. Like it's incredibly uh, how prolific he was. Yeah. And I mean, and he worked with, you know, looking through uh, some of these actors to kind of take a look at their later careers. Almost everyone that I looked up and I didn't look up every, you know, all 24 or whatever, because I knew we weren't going to go through all of them. I did. <laughs> that is good. Good for you. But I will say that almost everyone that I did look up that I thought we should mention was in more Robert Altman movies. Like all of these actors love working with Robert Altman and work with him again. Yes. You might say he had a company of his own. Ah, he did. He did indeed. <laughs> um, I mean, so the big breakout here obviously is Ronnie Blakely who was nominated for that Oscar. This was her first role. And she was mainly a musician, and that's what she's continued. She still releases albums. I think her last one was in 2020. Um, she was in, after this, uh, the Rolling Thunder Review with Bob Dylan, which, of course, was uh, got a lot of new attention with that Martin Scorsese documentary from a year or two ago. And uh, she continued to act a bit, including in A Nightmare on Elm Street, but um, didn't has a, doesn't really have any acting credits post-1990. So mainly a musician, but I mean, good for her. 
Interesting life. Uh, she wrote, produced, directed, and starred in her own feature music docudrama, I Played It For You, in 1985, and used to be married to Vim Vendors. Ah, Vim Vendors, another uh, awesome, awesome movie year. Awesome movie year. Subject. Alumnus. Yes, indeed. A proud alumnus of Awesome <laughs> Movie Year. Yeah. So, I mean, I noted a lot down. I, what other actors do you want to kind of uh, highlight here? I mean, I think like, look, I already said I said Ned Beatty and maybe I'm sure we'll talk about him in further detail. But if you just like look at what he did in the 70s, you're like, dude, this guy, uh, you know, uh, you could put his kind of, uh, you know, resume against anyone's in the 70s, I'd say. Um, so that, I think you got to mention Karen Black because of Easy Rider and, um, uh, of course, Five Easy Pieces comes up again. She won Golden Globes for Five Easy Pieces and The Great Gatsby. And, uh, another Altman movie that she was in that I, I think I have mentioned here before, Come Back to the Five and Dine, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. She plays a trans, at that time they were called transsexuals, uh, you know, so she plays a uh, a trans person. And um, that, that was a pretty brave role for her to take in like 1980, I'd say. Yeah, that's one that I was hoping I could maybe watch because I haven't seen that. And I know you liked it a lot and um, seems like a very highly regarded Altman movie. And of course, for Karen Black, I didn't get a chance to see that, though, this week. But um, I I was introduced to Karen Black by watching Rob Zombie movies. Right. House of a Thousand Corpses. Right. And she was kind of a horror icon later in her career, but she just was everywhere. I uh, randomly watched an episode of Murder, she wrote the other day for an article I'm working on. And who was the guest star in that episode? It was Karen Black. Right. So two other things. We've mentioned The Day of the Locust, which was also from 75, the send up of Hollywood. She's in that. And she was in Hitchcock's last movie, Family Plot. Yeah. I mean. To work with Altman and Hitchcock and Rob Zombie. <laughs> what a career. <laughs> That's right. So you nailed it, Josh. Um, I thought it was interesting. Keith Carradine, after getting that Oscar win for I'm Easy, even though he hadn't really done music before this, it did launch him briefly into a musical career. And he released a couple albums after this. And that that didn't really go anywhere. But of course, he's an incredibly prolific actor, uh, still works. I mean, he was in The Power of the Dog. He was on Fear of the Walking Dead. And, uh, you know, he had worked with Altman on McCabe and Mrs. Miller and, and Thieves Like Us. Um, Ned Beatty, too, that you mentioned before, he was in Cookie's Fortune many years later. That was another Altman film. So, you know, all these people coming back around to Altman. I saw this quote about Keith Carradine. Someone was saying, like... Uh... There's no doubt he's got the talent to be a movie star, but he keeps getting pushed into these roles where they want him to be a singer. And it's kind of like it, it was a different time, kind of murkying the waters of what he was doing and who he was. But I liked him as Lou on um, season one of Fargo as Molly's dad. Oh, yeah, that was a really good role for him. And he has that that kind of that nice, like uh, paternal uh you know, uh, aspect to his, his personality. Right. And that character becomes the main character in season two. Right. Played by another in actor, a flashback though. in a flashback. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, all these actors are interesting. Uh, I think Josh, uh, Timothy Brown, who played Tommy Brown was a pro football, uh, all, you know, he was an all pro football player and an announcer. So like they all have these cool backgrounds, I feel like. Yeah, we've I think we I don't know if we've talked about Henry Gibson, but we've talked about some of his films before. Like you said, he was more of Blues a comedy Brothers. actors. Yeah, he plays the the Nazi leader in the Blues Brothers. He was also in Kentucky Fried Movie, which we did an episode on. And he worked later with Altman in Health and A Perfect Couple. Um, 
I did, you know, like I said, I enjoyed Geraldine Chaplin. She's, she's still around. She's still working, did a lot of European films, um, played her own grandmother. In, That's pretty cool. In the biopic Chaplin with, uh, with Robert Downey Jr. as, as Charlie Chaplin. Of course, she's Charlie Chaplin's daughter. Um, she too was in other Altman films in Buffalo Bill and the Indians and in A Wedding, uh, was recently on The Crown, which of course is a huge TV show. So still doing a ton of stuff. Right. I mentioned Alan Garfield, who played Barnett, uh, who was a member of the Actors Studio. Josh uh, studied with Lee Strasberg and Ilya Kazan. He um, was in the film Skateboard with Leif Garrett. And, but more importantly, he was an acting teacher for some guy who was in his class named Quentin Tarantino. Well, he didn't teach Quentin Tarantino enough about acting. I mean, you would say that Tarantino works well with actors. He works well in that way. Yeah. In that way, um, he did. Josh, Barbara Harris, you're going to like this, Josh. Okay. uh, You know, who was really more of a kind of Broadway actress, Mm -hmm. shall we say? Josh, Barbara Harris was a Tony winning actress for The Apple Tree, which, as you might remember, I performed in in high school. Wow. Did you play Barbara Harris's role? No, I don't think I did. Although I uh, did not win a Tony or any other award, although I felt I uh, performed well in that. I'm that, sure you deserved a Tony. I didn't. I didn't see you uh, in that in, a, in that high school performance. I don't think so. I apple remember tree. seeing you in a number from West Side Story, but I don't think I saw the apple tree. Uh, I did. I did. I was in both, Josh. Yeah. Yeah. It was good. <laughs> um, we should uh, mention Joan Tewksbury, the writer here who uh, had a lot, like you said, worked with Altman before, but also had a very long career as a writer and director, mainly in uh, TV and also on stage. She's written a novel. She was a screenwriting professor at USC. So quite a varied career there. But, you know, this is probably the the most high profile moment of that career. Josh, I forgot to mention about Karen Black. She was in an improv group called the Rockefeller Players from Westwood, New Jersey, the town I grew up in. Oh, man. So many. Really, the legacy. I could have been in this movie had I been an adult in 1975 and not had not been born yet. Right. Yeah. I feel like that's the connections to the life of Jason Harris are really the key legacy of Nashville. I I think we got to mention Scott Glenn. I don't think we've talked about him. Huge, uh, you know, career urban cowboy, the right stuff. Backdraft training day, the born stuff. Dave loved him in Greenland. And uh (laughs) Yeah. 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 Scott, who plays the uh, the military, uh, the, the veteran who uh, is a big, you know, is devoted to Barbara Jean, who and he's almost sort of like a fake out character because he seems like super intense. And we worry that maybe he's dangerous, but he turns out not to be the one who's really dangerous. Yeah. It's like I said, we could keep going, but all these people are so interesting. Thomas Hal Phillips, who played Hal Philip Walker, was a Fulbright scholar and an author. You know, Keenan Wynn, who played uh, Mr. Green, was a very famous radio and theater actor and actually act with his, acted with his father, Edwin, in uh, Rod Serling's Requiem for a Heavyweight on Playhouse 90. So, like, just really cool stories on all these guys. Alan F. Nichols, who played Bill in Bill, Mary, and Tom, was an actor, a director, and a writer. And, uh, and he was uh, the captain, Johnny, in uh, Slapshot. So that's fun. Oh, yeah. And uh, Christina Raines, who played Mary, was in The Duelist, and she was a model. Like, they all have, like, these very varied careers. Yeah, I mean, and we've talked about Shelley Duvall and Lily Tomlin before in other episodes. Of course, they're, you know, the, the most famous ones here. But Altman knew how to pick them, right? He knew how to pick people like that who were super famous uh, or would go on to be, and people who 
just were writers or musicians or not necessarily known for actors, but who were perfect for exactly what he needed in his film. He nailed it. Indeed. So <laughs> that is Nashville. And that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can uh, sing for us online and on social media. Yeah, but if you do, make sure you've at least reached the quality that I have as a singer, please. Uh, we are at awesomemovieyear.com, Awesome Movie Year, Facebook and Instagram, Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. And of course, Josh, you can find me at Go For Jason on Letterboxd. You can find me at Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy on all the socials. And you can look at Eat This Comedy if you like websites. Who doesn't like websites? <laughs> Josh Bell hates everything.com is my website that mostly just has old stuff now. I'm also at Josh Bell hates everything on Facebook, at Signal Bleed on Twitter or X, as it is now known. <laughs> Did that Sig just happen today? Yeah, as we're recording, it happened yesterday, I think. I um, so who knows what it'll actually be when this episode comes out. But whatever that thing is, that's my handle there. At, uh, also at Signal Bleed on Letterboxd. And you can listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at Piecing Pod. Dave, you ever do any country music? Uh, yeah, there's some country-ish stuff going on on the Pup Pups album that just came out. You, uh, you, you have a lot of industrial sounds, Dave, so I think you could combine them to get industrial. Industrial. That, that'll be my next album for sure. I do not want to hear that. Uh, thank you to everyone. If you're listening to this uh, through our Patreon, the By David Rosen Patreon, thank you so much for your support. Our, our small but loyal fan base there on Patreon. And if you're listening to this later and you want to sign up and hear the bonus episodes, check out uh, patreon.com slash By David Rosen. We've also got another bonus episode from this season and there's uh, material from piecing it together early episodes from that and stuff from dave's music career no industrial music but no. other music right dave <laughs> maybe that's the only place i'll put the <laughs> industrial music that i make i think i'm onto something here uh but also thanks to everyone for all the feedback and for you know kind of pushing us in the direction to cover these films yeah so check out our other bonus episode for this season and thanks for listening to awesome movie Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.